with the um, Impaired Physicians Program at the Pennsylvania Medical Society, where she's been for a couple of years now doing uh, really outstanding work in, in that state. And uh, they've got a really uh, strong program and a and wonderful support group for impaired physicians there. Um, she's going to be speaking to us today about homophobia and its impact on treating the addictions. Uh, it, it's an area that doesn't get talked about very much, and it's one that uh, is one of the uh, great resistances uh, that we have to deal with in, in, in terms of the sort of uh, moralistic um, counter-transference that a lot of people deal with. Uh, Penny? <laughs> We'd like... Um, here is Dr. And I'm sure we're going to have a, a great talk. Thank you. Thanks. Good morning. Thank you. Um, as you probably noticed in the program, uh, Kevin O'Brien is listed as the co-presenter on this uh, on this presentation. Uh, sadly, he is not able to be with us here today because his brother died on Thursday, and he needed to be at home with the family, uh, which is. Uh, something that I hope we'll all express our sympathies to him about and something that I hope you'll keep in your hearts when you hear my presentation, which is really only half prepared <laughs> because the other half is Kevin's half and I don't even have his notes, so we're winging it a little bit, but we'll do the best we can. Um, the idea of this presentation, uh, we can turn on the slides if somebody's up there, or can I do that? That didn't happen. Oh, it's on? Oh, oh, okay. Hey, okay. All right, the idea for this presentation is to increase uh, your awareness of the impact of, homosexual, uh, of homophobia on homosexual patients in treatment for addiction. Uh, we want you to uh, recognize some of the unquestioned assumptions that permeate treatment programs as they, as they do the rest of society and their impact on patients and their families. And we want you to increase your understanding of the concept of internalized homophobia, which I'll speak more about as we go along, and how important it is uh, in the recovery of gay and lesbian patients. And finally, we want to uh, raise your consciousness about the importance of staff role modeling uh, in treatment settings, whether they're inpatient, residential, uh, outpatient, or simply an ongoing group therapy experience. The therapist and other members of the staff play a central role in determining the uh, impact of certain aspects of the group process on the gay and lesbian patients who may be members of the group at any particular point in time. The first thing we'll start out with is an overview of the whole concept of homosexuality and other alternative sexualities. Uh, this, was the, this was Kevin's part of the uh, presentation. I'll try to hit the high points here in the sense that there's a long history uh, involved, which I'm not going to go into in, de in detail, but the split or the controversy remains the same today as it has been over many centuries uh, in philosophical and uh, sociological thought, and that is, uh, is it an essential a part of a person's identity, or is it something that is constructed or learned or acquired at a later point in development. Uh, this is an ongoing uh, area of controversy, and nowadays there are a lot of uh, different theories about that. We have um, some moral and religious perspectives on that, many of which in, in uh, the more uh, 
conservative, uh, traditional churches uh, and other religious denominations have seen this as a sinful issue, something involving uh, improper behavior in the eyes of the higher power. Uh, there are psychological theories that uh, that probably Freud's being the most common, which indicate that this is a, a psychiatric problem or an illness. And then there are uh, the newer studies, this, the scientific studies that show uh, some issues involving genetics and uh, other aspects of biology, as well as a psychological uh, perspective on this today. Uh, the, those of you who are familiar with the genetics uh, and the, some of the recent studies are aware that there's a, a, a theory anyway that there's an X-linked trait. Uh, it's actually known as XQ28, which uh, has been studied rather extensively by uh, Dean Hamer and some of the people that he's worked with. There are other theories involving certain structures in the brains, particularly the hypothalamus. Uh, and then there's a whole group of psychiatrists and psychologists who uh, do not accept that biological uh, basis and have different theories about that, but which also um, uh, are based on an essentialist position, that is, that this is an, a, uh, a matter of the person's identity. And uh, I'll talk more about that when I get down to the section on uh, the APA. Okay. Just to be clear on definitions here, some of the alternative sexualities that you may be thinking about today or that we may be touching on today, uh, we are talking about in the first three uh, items on this list, gay men, lesbians, and bisexuals are at issue in terms of what we're talking about here today. I put the other two things on the uh, list here uh, for clarification purposes, and I'll get to them in a minute. But when we're talking about uh, gay people, lesbians, we're talking really about a continuum here. Uh, there are a number of different uh, ways this has been conceptualized throughout uh, the time of research in this area. Probably the Kinsey scale is the one that most people know the best. So I'll just mention that for those of you who are not familiar with the Kinsey scale. It's a seven-point scale from zero to six, where zero represents exclusive heterosexuality and six represents exclusive homosexuality. And depending on the study that you look at and when it was used and under what conditions it was applied, sometimes that refers to behavior. Sometimes it refers to ideas, feelings, and sexual fantasies, or sometimes it's a combination of both. Some of the studies have been done using the scale twice with each participant in the study, once in terms of their actual behavior and the other in terms of their sexual fantasies. But most people can rate themselves somewhere on the Kinsey scale between zero and six. And like most scales, most continua, it does have a certain uh, bell shape to it so that very few people are all the way at one end or the other of the continuum. Most people have had at least some sexual fantasies, thoughts, or feelings that fall into both categories. It's not a bell curve in the sense that the majority of people fall in the middle or the bisexual range, but it is that it is a continuum, and it is rare to find somebody who has never had any thoughts, feelings, or experience that is at the other end of the continuum from what they primarily identify themselves as being today. Uh, the other thing that's probably worth mentioning here is that it's not fixed over time. 
so that a person might rate himself at one position on the Kinsey scale as an 18-year-old and differently as a 24-year-old and differently as a 50-year-old. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that person has had an essential change in his identity, but just rather that he has matured and developed in a way uh, that moves him somewhere up or down the scale at given points in his life or given, given experiences. Uh, the bisexual person is the person in the middle of the scale who has had experiences and feelings in both on both sides of the issue and is either undecided about identity or orientation or is comfortable with a mixed orientation and is not at all troubled by the fact that some of his or her partners, fantasies, and interests ally on both sides uh, of the continuum. Now, transsexual persons or transgendered individuals, which I think is the preferred term these days, uh, are people who feel they wish to change the uh, sexual identity that they were born with. Some of the phrases that you hear about this is that they feel as though they're trapped in the wrong body. Uh, although they appear to be male, they really feel female and always have. This has been part of their identity struggle as they've grown up. And as adults, they choose to live and behave as the opposite gender from what they appear phenotypically typically to be. Uh, this is not part of the gay and lesbian experience for the most part, although uh, some transgendered individuals are gay or lesbian. But it is not an essential part of being gay or lesbian to have conflicts over your identity as a female or a male. And it's important to keep that in mind. Also, we talk about uh, transvestites as persons who feel sexually aroused by, uh, uh, enjoy the experience of, and uh, sexualize the experience of wearing the clothing of the opposite gender of the one that they're assigned to. These people typically do not wish to change genders. They're not interested in living a life as a female when they were born male or vice versa, but they find sexual pleasure and excitement in dressing up as the opposite sex, and uh, that's known as cross-dressing. This is... Uh, can be overt. Uh, people may be, uh, enjoy getting dressed up in an entire outfit and going out into society in drag, or it may be expressed as a more secretive or hidden behavior, such as wearing the underwear of the opposite gender. Now, this is really not the same as uh, enjoying dressing in drag for the social value of it. Uh, transvestitism is listed in the DSM-4. Uh, it is considered a disorder for those people who find it uh, mm -hmm. dystonic for them, and it's often the focus of some treatment, whereas getting dressed in drag can just be done for fun or for other purposes other than sexual arousal. Some people uh, dress in drag for more pragmatic person, uh, uh, purposes like Mrs. Doubtfire, for example, or Tootsie, uh, or whatever. Uh, or maybe, uh, what, uh, uh, what is the British character's name? Uh, Dame uh, Edna. Uh, or, or there's a similar kind of person, I think, in uh, South Africa who does that as well. In any case, uh, people who enjoy cross-dressing either for the social fun of it or for the sexual arousal of it can be either gay or straight. And it is not necessarily indicative of their sexual orientation. It does not really fit into the experiences that we're going to be talking about today, but it seems worth clarifying that these are different phenomena. Okay, now what is homophobia? Well, the dic dictionary defines homophobia as an irrational fear of, hatred of, or discrimination against persons who are gay or lesbian. 
And uh, this is a very widespread phenomenon in our culture. We see it in every walk of life, at every level of society. Some of it is very easy to recognize, um, and some of it is much more covert, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. Subtle forms of homophobia kind of invade our consciousness on a day-to-day basis. And if you're not uh, tuned into it, if you're not paying attention, you probably don't notice much of it. It has its origins in a number of different aspects of our culture, religious, cultural, and societal. Uh, There are a lot of theories about what is homophobia and how it got started or how it became an important part of our culture in America today. Uh, that, that includes all sorts of different psychological and sociological theories. Probably one of the most familiar one is the Freudian or, or psychodynamic theory that homophobia is a defense against our own homosexual feelings uh, for persons who would be threatened by or uncomfortable being aware or conscious of having attractions or feeling uh, drawn towards or affection towards someone of their own gender. Um, this kind of plays itself out in some of the classic paranoid reactions that people have uh, to gay and lesbian persons. Uh, A more modern theory than that, which I like a lot and which I find very intriguing, and there are a couple of books on the topic, is that homophobia is really just a form of sexism. That it really arises from a need to rigidly adhere to sexual roles in the culture in order to keep women uh, in a power-down position. And therefore, uh, any feminine traits, so-called feminine traits that appear in men are threatening and any masculine traits that appear in women are threatening because they threaten the balance that keeps the sexism going in the culture. It's sort of an interesting theory and of course that's all it is at this point but it's it's, uh, provoking to talk about, about it. How does it express itself? Well, of course, the obvious or intentional expressions of homophobia we see around us all the time. There are the recent comments of Senator Jesse Helms uh, on the Ryan White Care Act that you probably all heard last week. Uh, the um, other thing that was in the news last week was uh, the woman who has written a book on her experiences of being shot along with her lover on the Appalachian Trail uh, uh was being interviewed on a number of interview shows last week, and I heard some of the comments that she made. These are obvious, overt, and in some cases quite violent expressions of homophobia in the culture that we live in. But probably more subtle, and uh, definitely more subtle, and probably more damaging to gay and lesbian people on a day-to-day basis is the unintentional or unconscious or unintended homophobia that surrounds us day-to-day. We hear it all the time if we're listening for it. It comes up in our day-to-day lives and has a continuous downputting effect on persons that are not necessarily its targets but can't avoid hearing it in their lives as they go through the world. Uh, let me give you an example of that from my own experience. A, couple, a few weeks ago, I went to a conference in which the speaker was speaking about group dynamics and how to work effectively with an organizational system in fundraising activities had absolutely nothing to do with sexual orientation uh, or anything of the kind. But he made a rather egregious and um, blatant anti-gay joke as a part of his remarks. 
And that was just part of what, and most of the people in the audience laughed about this. Uh, afterwards, several of us went up to him and pointed out to him that he was making some assumptions, i.e., everybody in the audience was straight, no one would be offended by his remarks, etc., and that some of us were, in fact, offended by his remarks, whether or not we were gay or straight, because uh, it was insensitive of him to have said such a thing. He was shocked and amazed and had never even thought of the joke that he was telling as having a homophobic content. Uh, this is the kind of subtle, unconscious, unintentional homophobia that takes place day by day. It's the sort of thing that gay and lesbian people grow up with from the time they become aware of their sexual orientation, from the time that they begin to think about and question sexuality in adolescence or earlier than that. They also become aware that there's something wrong with them according to the values of the society that they live in that they don't measure up, that they're the brunt of jokes, that they're the target of violence, that they are, in fact, people who are not okay in terms of our social norms and values. And this is, of course, what leads to and what continues to foster the internalized homophobia, which is the last thing on this slide. That is the person's own self-hatred, self-rejection, shame, uh, inability to accept his or her own sexual preferences, sexual orientation, and lifestyle because of the long-term, lifelong training that all of us have had that says people who are like this are not okay. They're less than, they're not good enough, they don't measure up, they're immoral, they're sinful, or whatever the other aspects of its expression may be. Uh, the way this kind of thing is changed is through education. But, of course, there's a lot of controversy about that right now, and most efforts that are being made to educate people in the society at large are being criticized, attacked, and otherwise uh, interfered with by those who feel that this should be the status quo. Internalized homophobia is probably the reason for some of the problems that gay and lesbian people have in their day-to-day -day adult lives. There are increased rates of depression, for example, in the population, and often at the heart of that depression is the feeling of being left out, excluded, rejected, hated, and perhaps threatened. Uh, because in some areas of our culture, and even unexpectedly in areas that would appear to be safe, it is not always safe for a gay person or lesbian uh, to be himself or herself. Uh, we also have higher incidence of substance abuse in the population, and that probably is also related to internalized homophobia, as well as uh, related to the fact that the large majority of gay and lesbian persons when they are struggling with their orientation and when they're going through the process known as coming out, do so in the context of a bar where alcohol is being served and is expected. It's expected that you will use alcohol. Alcohol is used in coping with internalized homophobia, particularly in the social setting of gay bars. Then we can talk about heterosexism. Is that, um, we have a slide on that, I think. Now, heterosexism is a little more subtle than homophobia, but it's part and parcel of it. And even though it's not as overt and it isn't intended to harm anybody, it can be just as harmful in many ways as overt homophobia. Heterosexism is the assumption that everyone is straight. The assumption that in any group uh, there is 
only one way to be in terms of sexual orientation and no consideration is given to any of the other alternatives that might be present in the group or in the audience. Heterosexism, of course, is the way of being of things like television for the most part and radio and uh, etc. We do it in our treatment centers and I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, uh, but it, it's different from homophobia in that it's not based on any overt bias, hatred or fear, it's just based on false assumptions. It's based on the idea that um, everybody is the same, i.e. heterosexual. And let me give you an example of how this causes harm. Let's say we have a patient coming into a treatment center and the doctor is sitting down with the patient to do the admission history and physical. And we get to the social history part of the physical and the doctor says to this female patient, are you married? Well, the answer is no. Do you have children? Well, the answer is no. Do you have a steady boyfriend? Well, the answer is no. So the doctor assumes, rightly or wrongly, that this person is not sexually active and therefore does not need any further examination of sexual history, does not need education about risks of sexually transmitted diseases, does not need any attention paid to that whole aspect of that person's life. Now, they've also, the doctor's also given a message to this woman that says, this isn't safe. It isn't safe here for me to say, I do have a steady girlfriend. We live together. We've been in a committed relationship for the past 12 years, but it's probably not safe to tell this to this doctor because he's obviously assuming that I'm straight, which means he probably couldn't accept it if I weren't. Now, that's her assumption, probably based on years of experience of dealing with this same kind of thing. And so here we have a doctor and patient who really don't know each other at all. The doctor knows nothing about an aspect of this person's life, which is extremely important uh, and is not going to deal with that uh, in the coming aspects of treatment. And it's not going to pass on to the nurses or the counselors or anyone else any concerns that might be important to this person's overall recovery plan that are related to sexuality because assumptions have been made that have interfered with gathering the facts. Okay. Okay, now let's talk more specifically about addiction treatment and some of the things that we see in addiction treatment that are a problem. Okay, first we have the internalized or institutionalized homophobia of the treatment setting, whether it's a rehab center, a detox unit, an outpatient treatment program, or the like. And some examples of that institutionalized uh, homophobia that's reflected in the policies and operating, the standard operating procedures of the facility. Uh, let's talk about what happens when a gay patient, a gay male patient is admitted to the facility and someone has to decide what room is that person going to be assigned to. Every treatment center I've ever been associated with agonizes over this decision. Well, maybe we should put him in a private room, but then that would isolate him. Well, if we put him in with a, another gay male, they could get sexually active. Well, if we put him in with a straight guy, he could seduce that guy. And it always turns into this big homophobic debate over how to assign the rooms. You never see that same kind of debate going on with a heterosexual patient. It's the person gets assigned to the next room that's available, right, usually. Or sometimes the treatment center will say, well, we don't want to put him in with a young guy, so we'll put him with this old guy, with whom, of course, he has nothing in common, but that way it'll be safe. Now, some of the homophobic assumptions that underlie this kind of behavior are, first of all, that gay people are hypersexual. Right? They're having sex all the time. And that's the only thing they're interested in. 
it's also sort of, an, there's an assumption here that they're predators, that they're looking for victims, that they're out there trying to seduce straight people uh, and make them part of the club. Right? That's an assumption that truly deserves to be challenged, but that many people operate out of. This is not at all true, statistically speaking, but it seems to be something people assume, that gay people are recruiting all the time. They're always looking for converts. And, you know, if we put them together with straight folks, well, you know, this is dangerous. Somebody could get hurt here. Somebody could get hurt, but it's probably the gay man, not the uh, the, uh, homos- the heterosexual uh, roommate. Those kinds of assumptions color treatment centers and disturb the staff and never get processed, in, in my experience, unless someone in the facility is sensitive to these issues and says we, need to, says, we need to sit down as a staff and talk about this. What are the assumptions going on here? Are they valid? Are, are they reliable? Are we operating on good data here or not? Uh, some treatment centers have policies about coming out in treatment, and they're usually all or nothing. In one treatment center, you'll hear, well, we always encourage gay patients and lesbians to come out in treatment here because keeping secrets is not good for your recovery, and uh, it can lead to relapse, secrets kill, and so everybody is supposed to come out here on day one, and that's just the way it is in this treatment center. Now, that's based on some other assumptions that may not be safe for the patient, It may not be okay to come out on day one in your group if the people in your group are overtly or covertly homophobic and are not able to accept you, especially as a newcomer to the group. It may not be okay to ever come out in that particular group, depending on who's in it and their attitudes, and we have no control over the the other patients in the group in terms of uh, where they're coming from. We're probably not going to change their lifelong attitudes in a 28-day program, God forbid, in a five-day program. So for some people, it's really not going to be safe uh, to come out, in, and it, it needs to be an individualized decision. Likewise, the treatment center that says, oh, no, this is irrelevant. We don't want you to think about your sexuality while you're here. has nothing to do with sobriety. has nothing to do with recovery. You're just defocusing from your treatment if you think about that. So put it on the back burner for 30 days, and don't think about who you are. <laughs> just think about drugs and alcohol, right? Well, this is obviously ineffective in helping people to deal with uh, both their denial system, because it gets tied up in the denial system. The internalized homophobia does. I'm such a bad person. I've done all these awful things. Nobody accepts me. I'm not good enough. Therefore, what the hell, I might as well be drunk. Uh, Those kinds of denial issues need to be dealt with. Relapse triggers need to be dealt with. People need to have a chance to talk openly about who they are and how they feel, at least with someone. Then we come up with the issue of who should be the counselor. How should the counselor be assigned? And this is all related to the same sort of thing, staff issues and attitudes. Well, a gay person or a lesbian should always have a same-sex therapist, yes? No? It depends on the therapist, doesn't it? I mean, uh, it, there are some male therapists who are quite comfortable in working with gay patients and others who are very uncomfortable and unprepared to do such a thing. Uh, and many treatment centers don't take that into consideration. They don't think about the particular attitudes and uh, ideas of the therapist that they're talking about. What group is the person going to be assigned to? Are there choices about that? Is this a place where things are done randomly and you're going to step out of the random order to make a special assignment for this patient? And that's going to cause problems if it's not questioned. And what are the staff assumptions that are underlying that? Or is this the type of treatment center where all assignments like this are individualized? And 
there isn't a counselor available who has the attitudes you're looking for, who has the understanding, the education that you're looking for. The entire staff needs to be educated about this so mm -hmm. that these kinds of issues can be dealt with in a healthy and productive way instead of throwing the place into a panic uh, when somebody is admitted. These days, the other thing that comes up in terms of staff attitudes is the HIV question. The assumption is that all gay men are HIV positive until proven otherwise, right? And so if we admit this patient, we don't know if he's infected or not. We've got to be careful. We'll put the red bag on his door. I mean, it's not that bad anymore, but it used to be that, you know, people would be assigned all these uh, kind of stigmatizing uh, experiences early on before they were tested or even after they were known to be negative or positive, depending on the situation. Staff needs to be educated about those issues, and those assumptions need to be challenged on a day-to-day -day basis. The other assumption, which is equally damaging and uh, dangerous, is that lesbians never get AIDS. Lesbians are not at risk for sexually transmitted diseases, which, of course, they are, depending on their behaviors, and they need to be educated and dealt with in, in the appropriate way. But many people assume that because they're not having sex with men, that somehow, that today, that somehow that means they've never been at risk, either through sexual transmission or through transmission by IV drug use or any of the other opportunities that might be available. So, again, these assumptions in treatment centers need to be challenged, and attitudes need to be worked on, and the best way to do that is through educational experiences for the staff. It doesn't do any good, in my experience, to get up and give a didactic lecture about this to the staff. It really has to be something that's experiential. People have to go through some experiences of feelings, and there are a lot of ways of doing this, and it's not part of what I'm going to talk about today, to talk about the specifics of how to do staff training and education uh, in working with gay and lesbian patients, but it needs to be done if you're going to uh, work with that kind of patient. And almost all treatment centers are working with that type of patient, whether they know it or not. They may not be aware of it because they may not ask, and they may give a subtle or not-so-subtle message that it's not okay to be out here, but they all are dealing with it. What is the attitude about the staff about the whole idea anyway that can be reflected in disclosure? Um, are the staff out to each other? Are there gay people on the staff, and are they closeted, or are they open and comfortable about their identity? And what is the attitude of the other staff members toward them? Is this a working team that accepts each other as they are, or is this a team in which there are splits and divides and, and conflicts and that need to be worked on and resolved? And does the staff who, who may be gay or lesbian come out to the patients? Is that part of the way things are done in this treatment center or not? That varies from treatment center to treatment center depending on uh, the overall attitude about staff self-disclosure. Uh, but if it's perfectly okay to disclose that you're recovering, and it's perfectly okay that, to disclose that you're a parent, and it's perfectly okay to disclose that you have a history of, um, of, of having been arrested, why is it not okay to disclose that you're gay or lesbian? And what does that mean about the overall attitudes of the treatment center? Those are questions that have to come up when you're looking at your staff attitudes and how they impact on patients. Uh, a, a recent example I saw of that was a, a, a gay male patient who was at a treatment center where on Saturday evenings there was a, uh, a uh, 
social function for the patients that involved uh, square dancing and music. And one person uh, from the patient community was acting as the MC for this social occasion and was, in fact, telling uh, homophobic jokes. Nothing was said about that. The staff did not confront that at the time, even though the staff and all the patients knew that this young man was gay and he had been very out and open with his group and the rest of the treatment center about his uh, orientation. Uh, nothing was said by the staff at the time, and when he complained about it later on, he was told he was defocusing from his treatment and that he should get his mind back on recovery and stop complaining and whining uh, about these other problems. Now, that was a very damaging example of the kind of homophobia that takes place in some treatment settings, and this was at a good treatment center. I'm not talking about some some sleazy fly-by-night place here. We're talking about an outstanding treatment center that has a national reputation. Okay. Uh, with the peers, with the other patients, there are lots of ways that this presents itself, uh, depending on the group and who's in it. Lots of the patients may come from backgrounds and experiences that have made them very uncomfortable or very homophobic, and uh, that's a challenge to the staff in terms of both leadership and modeling and also confronting and, and dealing with specific situations as they come up. Here we get to the question of tolerance versus acceptance. And this is a, an important distinction, I think. And again, it's a continuum. We start over here with the person who is totally intolerant and doesn't uh, have any positive experiences or any positive judgments to make about anyone who happens to be homosexual. And on this end, we have the person who is affirming, accepting, and celebrating the person not only in spite of, but because of their sexual orientation. So this continuum, people fall somewhere in the middle uh, of this continuum, and many times you have a staff that is tolerant, that is, there's no overt anti-gay, anti-lesbian sentiment being expressed. There's no open hostility. There's no open homophobia. But it's really just that we're putting up with this because we have to, as opposed to the more accepting position where I accept and welcome you to this to this group, I affirm who you are, and I have no negative judgments against you. And that continuum uh, depends a lot on the staff, and the staff can change their position on that continuum through the kind of experiential education that I was talking about before. Uh, common ways this shows up and the things we talk about that we debate um, is the heterosexist assumption that all the patients in the treatment center are straight and they all have quote-unquote traditional families. This often presents itself in terms of the family program. How are we how are we going to deal with the family issues with this particular patient? Is she going to invite her uh, committed life partner to participate in the family program? And if so, how is that going to be dealt with by the staff? Or is that going to be excluded because only married couples are permitted to participate in the family program? Or parents? are permitted to participate in the family program. And I've seen that kind of thing happen in treatment centers and leave out an entire important piece of that particular patient's life because the family member, the significant other, is not getting educated about the disease, is not getting educated about codependency, is not getting involved in an Al-Anon program or some similar kind of uh, support system. Uh, what is the, def the, the treatment center's definition of family? And is that open enough and accepting enough that it can encompass the family needs of the gay and lesbian patients. And the most important aspect of it, I think, is how are we dealing with the patient's individual internalized homophobia as it relates to addiction, recovery, denial, continuing care planning, and relapse prevention.
If it doesn't get dealt with at all, we are leaving this person vulnerable to major problems in early recovery and in ongoing recovery. So it does need to be dealt with. It is not a distraction. It is not a defocus. It is part and parcel of who this person is. It would be the same as saying to a heterosexual patient, we're not going to deal with your family craziness that's going on right now because you have to learn to stay sober one day at a time no matter what happens in your family. So yes, you're going to go home to this spouse or this parent who's actively alcoholic and drinking in the home. And you're going to be okay because you'll have the tools of this program and don't worry about anything else. Just don't drink one day at a time. I mean, this is not going to be adequate for these patients, and we need to be aware of that. I have heard treatment centers that have treated it exactly that way, though, so uh, it's important. Uh, let's see. Okay, a choice of treatment programs is always an interesting area of debate. There are some specialized treatment programs that work exclusively with gay, lesbian, and bisexual patients. Uh, probably the most famous of those is Pride in Minneapolis, but there are others around, and some have come and gone. Uh, many patients have gone to those treatment centers and gotten excellent treatment as a foundation for a beginning recovery that has been uh, successful and rewarding for them. There are some disadvantages to the specialized program. One is there aren't that many of them, and they're often very, very far away from where the patient lives, so the family is not available. The partner or significant other is not available to participate in the family program, and there may not be services for that person available in their home community that they feel comfortable accessing with the partner a thousand miles away. So that's a disadvantage. Another, uh, another area of debate that you can hear that I don't have a strong position on one way or the other is that some people will say, well, look, uh, this person is going to need to stay sober in the real world. And going for 28 days or three weeks to a treatment center with other gay and lesbian patients may be a wonderful affirming experience, but it isn't going to give that person the opportunity uh, to deal with straight people and cope with the homophobic reactions and still do well in recovery. So that's an argument that's made against the specialized treatment program. Another option is to look at specialized tracks within general treatment programs. Some of those have been very successful and very helpful to some patients. Others have been a disaster because they've kind of singled people out, and it was like, you know, you, you get the yellow armband when you come in, and, uh, and you are in this ostracized group the rest of the time that you're in treatment and have been a real problem and have interfered with people's recovery. So that has, if it's going to be done, it has to be done well. It has to be integrated into the treatment program, and the staff have to be accepting of it. It can't be something that's sort of grafted onto the staff without education and without their ability to accept it and deal with it as it is. It's sort of like trying to make your program non-smoking while half the staff is still smoking, you know, it's not going to work. And the same would be true if you try to develop a specialized track when you're dealing with half the staff being extremely homophobic and unable uh, to deal with this population. Um, many gay and lesbian patients get excellent treatment in generalized treatment programs, but some of them have not been able to voice their own special needs and their own concerns because of fear of ostracism by the other patients or because the staff attitudes have not invited openness and honesty about their identity. Uh, one thing that I've had a lot more experience with directly is running ongoing uh, therapy groups for gay and lesbian patients in the uh, continuing care aspect of recovery. And I've had several of these groups in my uh, when I was in private practice uh, over the years. They are usually uh, time limited, although I had one that was ongoing for about two years. They were very helpful to some patients, especially in a community in which the primary source of social and personal support centers around the bar. 
this provides an alternative place for people to come together to talk openly about their addiction issues, to talk openly about their partnership issues, but not to be in the setting of using chemicals and not to be in the setting in which there is ongoing uh, activity around uh, cruising, picking up people in the bar, and that sort of thing. That can be a major distraction. People in early recovery need to stay out of the bar in many cases because not only because of the issue of the availability of alcohol and other drugs in the bar, but also because of the sexual behavior that's going on in the bar and how that can negatively impact on a stable recovery system and the person's ability uh, to maintain some balance during those early months or even years of imbalance that we all heard about so much in, in such great detail yesterday uh, in terms of the, the issues involved with relapse. When Ann Geller said that it's a miracle that anyone gets sober at all, I couldn't agree with her more. And uh, if we can minimize some of the stresses there, but there has to be an alternative. I mean, we can't expect people to go home, lock themselves in their apartment, and spend the first year not going out and watching television. Uh, there have to be other alternatives, so there have to be uh, mechanisms for that. In large metropolitan areas, there's a lot of that kind of support. There's a lot of support in the AA community, and there's a lot of alternative support systems that are available through the gay community centers, through women's groups, etc. But that may not be available in smaller, more rural areas where people are more isolated. Okay. Okay, now this is the thing uh, that Kevin and I wanted you all to use as a kind of a self-quiz. There is a handout, by the way, that I think is in the back if you want to pick this on the handout, if you want to pick it up on your way out. But here it is on the slides. Uh, these are some questions you can ask yourself to kind of assess your own level of homophobia and whether or not you need to do some work in this area. Do you tolerate or accept various expressions of alternative sexualities? How do you react when you see somebody who is behaving in an overtly uh, homosexual manner, the extremely effeminate male or the extremely masculinized woman? How does that affect you? And do you react to that in negative ways? Or do you feel comfortable with that? Can you enjoy that? Can you relax and participate in that in a comfortable and accepting manner? And if not, and patients like that are coming into your treatment center, then that's something that deserves some attention and some education. Uh, do you see homosexuality as a preference or an orientation? Now, this is an ongoing area of debate right now, uh, but gay and lesbian persons see their orientation as such. It is not a preference. It is not a choice. It is not something I just decided one day to wake up, and from now on, I'm only going to be attracted to members of the same sex. It is an essential part of who he or she is, in many cases, particularly with men, it's something they've been aware of since they were four or five or six years old. It is an essential aspect of the personality, and the orientation is not a matter of preference. In fact, many gay men and lesbians have made attempts to change, to become straight, to go into some kind of therapeutic experience that allow, will allow them to find a more comfortable place in society because of how hard it is to be gay in the culture that we live in. And what they've discovered with that most of the time is it has not been helpful. It has only intensified their own internalized homophobia and shame and has not been useful to them in finding a balanced lifestyle. So that kind of question comes up. If you say orientation, is that just because it's politically correct or it's because you truly understand that that's what we're talking about here and that we're not talking about a conscious choice or a preference uh, that people express as adults? Do you feel comfortable with the explicit sexual terms that gay and lesbian patients use. Can you take a sexual history 
and hear those terms and not react in a way that will give the message to the patient that it's not okay to speak of these things to me. This is very important. Can you be accepting and receptive to those terms without making negative judgments? And even more difficult for many people, can you use those terms yourself to elicit a complete sexual history? Because many patients don't, for example, know what the term fellatio means. They've never heard the word before. They need to know what you mean by that. They need to know, even if you say oral sex, for example, uh, that's not something that many patients from certain social and cultural backgrounds are going to be able to relate to. They don't know what that means. They have never heard the word anal intercourse. But they can relate to the term butt-fucking. Can you say that term without turning red? Can you use it without becoming overtly embarrassed so that you can get a complete sexual history from this patient? If not, that may be something you need to think about and practice on because it doesn't come naturally to many people. And how would you react if a patient of your same gender came on to you, behaved seductively towards you? In some, in some uh, counseling courses that I've been a part of, we have talked openly and directly about how to behave when an opposite sex patient behaves seductively, but I've never seen a course for counselors, therapists, and certainly not for physicians uh, that taught people how to react appropriately and non-homophobically to an overture from a same-sex patient. These are interesting questions. I hope you'll take them home with you and think about them to some extent because I think uh, they could help you to uh, raise your consciousness and to decrease your own homophobia as it plays itself out in your practice. Okay, I wanted to review some of the positions that some of our organized medical associations and some organizations have taken in terms of the question of homosexuality and homophobia. Uh, the American Medical Association has been slow to uh, to react to this issue, but has finally come out with some supportive statements in the last couple of years. They've been hotly debated, but many of them have passed, and I think we'll see more progress in that area, especially in response to lobbying by some of the other medical associations that are active within the AMA. Uh, so I feel a little more hopeful about that than I did a couple of years ago, uh, which is not saying a lot, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, the American Psychiatric Association, on the other hand, in my opinion, has taken a fairly strong leadership position in this area uh, since 1973 when they made the decision to remove uh, homosexuality from the list of uh, psychiatric illnesses and recognize it as a variant of human sexual behavior that was not associated with an increased risk of psychopathology in general, uh, although we do, as I said before, have some data to suggest that the risk for affective disorders, particularly depression, may be higher in this population. We definitely know that the risk for suicide is higher in this population, particularly among adolescents. Ad gay adolescents and lesbian adolescents commit suicide at a much higher rate than the general population. It's estimated that about one-third of all adolescent suicides are among gay teens. And that's probably not because they're biologically at higher risk for depression. It's probably because of their experiences growing up in the homophobic society that we live in and the awful experience that's that, what that's like for a teenager. If you heard Dr. Millman's talk uh, before me and he was talking about some of the struggles that adolescents are going through, if you add to that an awareness and a knowledge that you are different, that you do not fit in, that you belong to a category that your parents, your friends, your family, and everybody that you have ever known rejects and thinks of as less than, 
beneath contempt and totally reprehensible. You can imagine what it's like for a teenager growing up in that kind of culture without the kind of support that he or she might need. And there are a lot of interesting studies in this area, that some of which are referenced here. All right, the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, which used to be known as the American Association of Physicians for Human Rights, uh, has been a, a uh, strong advocate for good health care for gay and lesbian patients and for acceptance of gay and lesbian doctors in the mainstream of American medicine. Uh, the, through research studies that have been funded by and supported by GLAMA, the um, issue of homophobia as a health hazard has been explored in a great deal of detail in the last couple of years. When I say that it's a health hazard, I mean that because of the homophobia of healthcare providers and because of the internal homophobia of the consumers, gay and lesbian patients are much less likely to get good health care than are their straight uh, counterparts in society. And there's a lot of detail available on some of these questions, but basically this is a consequence of homophobia that gay and lesbian patients are not getting their needs met, and I think that's particularly been true in some areas with regard to addiction treatment. And the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association has done a lot of good work in promoting that. I left out one organization which should be in here, which is the American Medical Women's Association, which has made strong, positive, and supportive statements about the importance of strong health care uh, availability for lesbians and gay men and for acceptance of the, their lesbian colleagues in the association. The American Society of Addiction Medicine, which you've all been hearing about as the co-sponsor of this CME program and which you're all being strongly encouraged to join, and I join in that uh, encouragement. Um, ASAM has been supportive to this cause, but has done not as much as it could have done in terms of educating addiction professionals to know about the needs of this population and to better serve them. We hope this is changing. They're beginning to include more in the scientific program on a day-to-day, -day, on a year-to-year -year basis. What we need is more on the beginner's level, in the Ruth Fox course, and out there in, in the regional communities, teaching people how to approach this problem, how to deal with these patients effectively and helpfully and supportively, and how to deal with the homophobia that's taking place within a treatment community. Uh, there is an organization, the National Association of Lesbian and Gay Alcoholism Professionals, uh, or NALGAP, which promotes this kind of education and uh, many other causes, including equal rights to treatment for gay and lesbian patients who have often been disenfranchised in this particular area. And finally, I'll just say a word about the 12-step programs. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, are aware that there are specialized meetings in many communities for gay and lesbian patients. Uh, gay AA is a very strong and active fellowship, particularly in urban areas. It's estimated that it's the largest special interest group within the AA fellowship. Uh, it's been around for a long time, but it is not available to everyone. There are many communities that do not have gay meetings and where they are very much needed. So that's an area that needs to be uh, a continued focus uh, for 12-step work. Uh, NA has been a little slower to move in this direction, but there are now NA meetings in many different areas of the country. Uh, the, the one that's been ongoing in the Baltimore area for many years uh, is called, uh, NA meetings in Baltimore typically have catchy names. I don't know if that's true everywhere else, but certainly in Baltimore they are. And the, the uh, gay meeting in Baltimore is called uh, Clean But Not Straight. <laughs> 
and it meets on Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock at the Gay Community Center. But uh, that kind of thing is very important in terms of confronting the internalized homophobic struggles that recovering gay patients have. They need a chance to uh, celebrate their recovery in the context of people who can understand what they're experiencing, who can help them to choose responses to what's happening in their lives, and who can begin to offer them alternatives to the bar scene, which is the only social outlet that many have known, uh, when they come into early recovery. Uh, again, there are many communities in, the, in this country and certainly abroad where that kind of support is not available to these patients. And alternatives are very much needed, particularly for teens and young people. That's the, that's the population that has the most difficulty not hearing the homophobic remarks, not thinking, well, they're not talking about me, not reacting in pain and in grief and in shame and in self-hatred to what goes on around them in the culture that they live in every day. And this is part of our role as addiction professionals to try to change this. This is a population which, depending on whose figures you look at, constitutes a significant proportion of the patients that we're dealing with. Most of the studies indicate that at least 10% of the population identifies itself as primarily gay or lesbian. And maybe another 10% of the population has had experiences uh, with same-sex relationships that they may never feel comfortable talking about, that they may feel ashamed about, that they may feel terribly uncomfortable about, but which color their identity and their concept of themselves and their sense of serenity in recovery and that they need to be given permission to discuss, to feel about, to think about, and to talk to other people about. If we aren't able to do this for this population, we are shortchanging a large percentage of the people that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis in the treatment setting. I have these case studies here, which we're not going to have time to go into today, but you might just want to look over them. There are a couple of examples of real cases that Kevin O'Brien and I have uh, each supplied one of from our own experience working in the treatment field of a gay and a lesbian patient whose needs were not being met in the treatment center in spite of the fact that these were outstanding, well thought of, credentialed, and thoroughly uh, uh, acceptable treatment centers. And this kind of thing happens all the time. We just want you to be more aware of it. We want you to ask questions about it and hopefully go back and educate your staff about the importance of this. If you work in the treatment field and you have the opportunity to do this kind of education and you're willing to do that, it's a wonderful opportunity uh, to help a fairly substantial portion of the population get their needs met in the treatment setting. Uh, any questions I can answer at this point or back there? Yeah? The relationship between homophobia and malpractice. Well, the uh, the uh, AFER or the GLMA studies that have, that are ongoing surveys of um, mm -hmm. both medical professionals and uh, patients, consumers of healthcare resources, indicate that on a number of occasions malpractice has occurred in the context of homophobic reactions. I'm not aware of any. Uh, lawsuits that have been filed strictly on the basis of homophobia. Now, there are a lot of lawsuits that have been filed on the basis of AIDS phobia or HIV phobia, and in that context, it's probably homophobia that we're talking about here. When we're dealing with healthcare professionals who react phobically, irrational fear of hatred of or discrimination against patients who are HIV positive or who have AIDS, we're probably dealing with homophobia in most cases. Sometimes it's not at all clear what the healthcare professional is afraid of catching. 
Uh, guess what? Homosexuality is not catching, but many people seem to, to be afraid that it is. And so I think many of those AIDS cases that have gone on to malpractice suits probably did involve homophobia as the basis of the behavior. I can't see if you're trying to say something, wave, wave your hand around. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, the question was, where do the, the terms lesbian and gay originate from? Uh, le lesbian is a term that originates from the island of Lesbos, one of the Greek islands, uh, where Sappho and her followers uh, practiced a, uh, a form of homosexuality in I don't know what year. Does anybody have any idea what part of what, when in history that took place? I'm not good at historical dates. Uh, but in any case, it's, it's been used... Uh, in modern times, referring back to that old, it's, but it's not really a myth. There's a historical Sappho, and it actually did take place at, at some time uh, in the pre-Christian era, I think. Uh, I don't know where the term gay came from. Does anybody, can anybody answer that? How it first came into use, or? I don't have any knowledgeable historians in the, in the audience, huh? I'm, don't don't have an answer for that, but I'll see if I can come up with one, okay? There are some suggestions for some further reading on this topic on the handout that I mentioned that's in the back. I don't see a whole lot of other questions, and I'm sure people are hungry, so uh, thanks very much.